I'm Farai Chidea. This week on Our Body Politic, we're featuring the needs and desires of conservative women of color. My name is Kim Klasik, and I'm running for Congress in Maryland's 7th District. And like Shirley Chisholm, I'm unbought and unbossed. That's Kim Klasik, a Black woman running for the late Elijah Cummings seat in Baltimore, speaking at the Republican National Convention earlier this year. Let me remind you, the Democrats have controlled this part of Baltimore City for over 50 years. And they have run this beautiful place right into the ground. For many people of color, the politics and rhetoric of the Republican Party, especially under President Donald Trump, seem impossible to embrace. But politics is a great national pageant of belonging, and everything from faith to a candidate's personal charisma sways voters. For a large number of people of color, social and fiscal conservatism are key in their support of the Republican ticket. My own family is socially and politically heterogeneous. Atheists, Catholics, and Protestants, staunch liberals, and stalwart conservatives, many of the latter veterans or children of veterans. But the conservatives in my family and many other Black families have been tested in voting their values in the age of Trump. Some choose to vote third party for that reason, even in a swing state. President Trump has a small but vocal contingent of Black supporters, though according to the Pew Research Center, only 6% of African Americans voted for Trump in 2016. Comparatively, more than 20% of Latinos voted for Trump, some of which was based on religious affiliation. On Our Body Politic, we make a point of exploring the ways that the super demographic of women of color is diverse, including ideologically. Thank you for tuning in to Our Body Politic. We're exploring the topic of conservatism and women of color this week. So we invited Shirlene Dela Cruz Ostroff to join us. She's the chair of the Republican Party in Hawaii. She told us the GOP in Hawaii is making plenty of room for people of color like herself. We have Samoan, we have Native Hawaiians, Filipinos, Chinese, a Korean, and African Americans, as well as um, white Americans uh, representing our slate. Thank you for joining us, Chairman Ostroff. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So can you tell us more about your role in heading the Hawaii Republican Party and what got you into politics? What was important to you? Absolutely. So I was never into politics. I spent my entire adult life away from politics because I was a military officer um, and I retired from the Air Force as a colonel after 25 years of service. And the military, we don't necessarily get involved in politics. But upon my return to my childhood home, where I decided to retire, I noted that there was a huge imbalance in politics. And so I decided to kind of get involved and try to bring a, a balanced governance model to Hawaii. And so I ran for chairman of the party, and that's where we are today. A number of my family members are socially and fiscally conservative Black veterans and also extended military family members. But as far as I know, they have chosen not to vote for President Trump. So what would you say to Black, Latino, Asian, and Native American conservatives who feel that because of race or other policy issues, they don't want to vote for the president? As you know, I'm 100% Filipino. My daughters are Samoan Tongan, and I'm married to a Jew. <laughs> um, after, so 
my point is that I understand a very complex tapestry that is our lives today. And so race is important to me as well. And so when I see a president that has the lowest unemployment for historically for Blacks and the lowest un- um, for Latinos and women and does um, criminal justice reform that directly uh, impacts positively our African-American community and, and does legislation to help our historically Black colleges and universities. Those are the things that I say is really important for all of us uh, people of color to understand that the policies are very um, uh, supportive of where we want to be. I understand that the vast majority of representatives, both in um, state government and your congressional representatives, um, are Democrats and not Republicans uh, coming from the state of Hawaii. Um, How does that change how you have to operate as someone who's in political power? And how do you deal with your colleagues across the aisle? Hawaii is used to political compliance to some, something like our supermajority of Democrats, right? Hawaii was a monarchy just a, just in a last century. And so our king and queen demanded uh, political compliance. And then when we were overthrown by um, businessmen from the United States, they demanded political compliance to the people of Hawaii. And then when we became a territorial government within my parents' lifetime, the territorial government demanded political compliance. So it's not surprising that in this day and age, we've been a state for 60 plus years now, that the supermajority commands political compliance. But there's a small there's a small group of people, and, and actually we're growing in numbers that understands that a competition of ideas can serve our state best. Chairman Ostrov, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I appreciate very much that you guys had me on and, and call me anytime. That was Shirlene De La Cruz Ostrov, chairman of the Republican Party in Hawaii. We continue our discussion about people of color and the Republican Party with Dr. Leah Wright Rigur. Dr. Rigur has written extensively about the topic, specifically the history of Black Republicans. She's an assistant professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and an associate professor of American history at Brandeis University. Welcome, Dr. Rigur. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with the basics. I mean, What are the core differences in political outlooks and philosophies between Black Americans who identify as Republicans and Democrats? So I think there are a lot of differences between African Americans or Black voters who identify as Democrats and those that uh, identify as Republicans. But none of those differences have been as, you know, as stark as they are in the in the era of Donald Trump. One of the overarching things that actually unites a lot of these, you know, Black Republicans and differentiates them from a number of Black Democrats is their understanding of what we might call the failures of democracy and how they interpret this idea of the failure of democracy. Now, a number of Black Democrats believe that democracy 
And the institutions, political institutions of democracy have failed black people, but they still place hope in the Democratic Party, or at least those kinds of electoral politics in terms of transforming the day-to-day lives of African Americans and black people on the ground. Black Republicans don't hold that same faith in the American political system. And so we do see a lot of, once you combine that with, say, ideas of economics, right, particularly ideas of deregulation, big business, right, this idea of, uh, you know, investment in black businesses, when we see that social conservatism, when we see that level of religiosity, that's when we begin to see significant differences between black Republicans and black Democrats on the ground. A lot of these kind of outspoken black Trump supporters are in outliers in a lot of ways, right? There aren't necessarily, you know, they don't represent, say, 25, 30, 40, even 50 percent of the black voting electorate. But still, just their very presence, I think, shocks a lot of people. But one of the things that that is really important is that they don't necessarily distinguish between, say, the racism of Donald Trump and what they see as the racism of the Democratic Party. They do a lot of whataboutism where they say, well, the other party is racist too, and they can focus on the other aspects of his presidency. You might ask, how do we disentangle that? But I think for people on the ground, people who are still kind of diehard about Donald Trump, they don't have to disentangle it because they know it's essentially irreconcilable. You know, one of the things that I've been watching is the gender differences in Black America. And it seems as if (laughs) Black women are much more motivated to vote for the Democratic Party um, in this election and in the past election. Have you been tracking that at all? Absolutely. So one of the fascinating things about the 2016 election, and I think one of the things that was you know, vastly underreported, understudied, underanalyzed was the gender gap between, uh, you know, black men and black women. When we look at who are those black Republicans, they're more likely to be men. We also know that black women are overwhelmingly supportive of the Democratic Party. They are essentially the backbone of the Democratic Party in, uh, you know, in the uh, modern period. They are the most consistent and the most loyal of Democratic voters. Black men, however, have a much softer, I think, and more complicated relationship to the Democratic Party. And so one of the areas where it, where it plays out and where it turns out is in terms of turnout. How many black men are coming out to vote, particularly in swing states? Are they coming out to vote in swing states for Democratic candidates? Are they voting third party or are they not voting at all? And so I think this is really important when we start looking at particularly how campaigns attract voters, how they uh, uh, reach people. One of the things that's really important here, too, is that we are not seeing the same level of support for the Democratic candidate that we saw with Barack Obama in 2008, but in particular in 2012 amongst black men. So... Let's imagine that we are 10 presidential election cycles in the future when America is majority Latino and people of color. You know, are there black Republicans or have the parties changed entirely? I think the combination of a lot of things moving forward, right, the pervade, you know, the pervasiveness of voter depression and voter, uh, voter suppression tactics, coupled with the fact that you are always going to have these kind of minority, racial minor, racial minority Republicans means that there is essentially a space within the Republican Party for these people, even though the Republican Party may not represent their best interests. It feels illogical to say, well, 
why would there be black people in the Republican Party when the Republican Party is actively hostile to civil rights? That's been the question of the last 50 years. And yet, here we are. So I think that's one of the things we can actually project out and say even 10 cycles from right now, if there are still two major political parties at that point, you will still have, and maybe a very small, small, minuscule number, but you will still have Black Republicans within the Republican Party. That was Dr. Leah wright Rigur, author of The Loneliness of the Black Republican. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. Now it's time for Sipping the Political Tea with Erin Haynes. Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th News and our political contributor here at Our Body Politic. Welcome, Erin. Farai, the home, home stretch. We're almost there. Oh, I am excited and terrified. All of it. All of it. All of the above. Absolutely. Of course, a lot of people, including us, are focused on the presidential race, but there's so many different races, local, state, a bunch of national ones, including the Senate and House races. So what should we be looking at in those in the coming weeks? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of energy down ballot, and and certainly a lot of those firsts that we saw in the 2018 midterms that helped to make the most diverse Congress that we've ever seen, particularly around women. A lot of them are up for re-election. I'm thinking about Lucy McBath out of Georgia, Johanna Hayes out of Connecticut, uh, Ayanna Presley out of Massachusetts, um, Lauren Underwood out of out of Illinois. Uh, the, the, they are definitely uh, back on the campaign trail. And, and while it looks good for some, it does not look good for all. So uh, we shall see how how uh, those races how they fare in those races. And then you know I'm also looking a lot at Black women and and as voters and how they may factor into a few key races. I'm thinking about the uh, Senate race in Georgia with uh, Kelly Loeffler, Doug Collins, and, and Raphael Warnock that is probably going to go to a runoff. Uh, the South Carolina race, obviously, with Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham that's getting a lot of attention. And then also the uh, a race that I feel like should really be getting more attention in this moment, which is the Mississippi Senate race between Mike Espy and Cindy Hyde-Smith, which is a bit of a rematch uh, from just a couple of years ago, uh, that, that special election, which he uh, came within striking distance of her and was going to be... Um, the first uh, Black man uh, to represent Mississippi, I think, since Reconstruction. So uh, Black women are definitely active and engaged on the ground uh, in Mississippi, from what I hear. I want to turn to something else of national importance, which is the census. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Trump administration ending the 2020 census early. Counting is now over. So what impact might this have for communities of color? Well, I think for a lot of marginalized communities, there is concern about undercount. And there was a push by, you know, a lot of groups to urge uh, communities of color to respond to the census, even in the midst of a pandemic. And even, you know, knowing that that there really wasn't, uh, it didn't feel like that much of, of uh, an emphasis on making the census a priority from the administration standpoint. So making sure that those communities, uh, you know, were counted in, in numbers that would get them the resources that they're going to need was very important. And there's a concern that that's not going to happen. Uh, so on the other side of this count, it is going to be interesting to see just um, how far those numbers are off from, from reality and what that's going to mean on the ground for folks. Also, the New York Times reported a story this week about how the Trump administration briefed stock market investors privately at the beginning of the pandemic, telling them the opposite of what they were saying publicly. 
In public, the administration said things were in control in the U.S. with COVID. And then there was a spiraling stock market and some Republican Party donors actually benefited. Can you help unpack this? Well, I think it, it goes, it, the reason the story matters is it goes to this theme, right, um, that, that we saw in Bob Woodward's reporting where the president was downplaying the virus, as he said, as he said that he wanted to do uh, to the American people while telling people like Bob Woodward, while, while uh, you know, his administration surrogates were telling people like these investors uh, quite another thing, giving them more of a sense of the reality of the pandemic that kind of news, when people are living kind of the daily reality of this pandemic and knowing the impact that it's had on their lives from both a public health and an economic standpoint, uh, a lot of women voters in particular that I talked to who have been making sacrifices uh, in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, uh, to hear th- these kinds of reports, uh, it's very upsetting. It's infuriating uh, for them knowing uh, what, what they've been trying to do to survive in this moment. Thanks so much, Erin. Thank you. Let's see what happens next week. Here at Our Body Politic, we continue to follow the COVID-19 pandemic with a special focus on how it impacts communities of color. Nationwide, coronavirus cases are up nearly a quarter compared to two weeks ago, with 40 states seeing more cases than last week. Falling temperatures drive people indoors where the virus can spread more easily. And combined with COVID fatigue, that likely means another large wave of cases is on the way. The Rocky Mountain states and upper Midwest are seeing the fastest growing outbreaks, and states in the Northeast, where stricter health measures brought cases down over the summer, are now seeing an uptick in cases. All of this is worrying to people, concerned about voting safely in the election barely more than two weeks away. Medical experts urge in-person voters show up with their own PPE, a mask and gloves, and to socially distance in line. Since summer, relatives of people who have died of COVID have come forward with stories of older relatives who followed President Trump's example on wearing masks and taking other precautions. Like Kristen Urquiza, who spoke at the Democratic National Convention about losing her father to COVID-19. My dad was a healthy 65-year-old. His only pre-existing condition was trusting Donald Trump, and for that, he paid with his life. Researchers at Cornell University analyzed 38 million English language articles about the coronavirus pandemic. Their goal? To track sources of misinformation. Articles that mentioned President Trump made up more than a third of those with misleading information. The authors concluded that, quote, President Trump was likely the major driver of the infodemic, end quote. Part of our regular COVID update includes bringing you the information you need to stay safe. We're bringing back a guest heard in our inaugural episode, Dr. Kavita Trivedi. She's a CDC-trained epidemiologist based in the Bay Area. She works with organizations to understand and act upon the latest developments in COVID containment. Welcome back, Dr. Trivedi. Thanks for having me, Fry. How much should we be paying attention to news of a possible COVID vaccine. I know some people are just, you know, um, for example, our president said we could have one by the end of the year. Um, What's a realistic timeline for that 
to happen because um, I believe that a, a vaccine trial was halted recently. You know, we have 11 uh, vaccines now in phase three trials. Um, one of them was just halted. But what we have seen, I think, in the last few days is the FDA clearly stating that vaccine companies should follow patients for about two months before they looked for um, FDA approval for uh, widespread distribution of the vaccines. And I think that it gives us a better timeline as to when we can imagine having a vaccine. We will not have a vaccine most likely before um, the election, and we will see how distribution actually unfolds when a vaccine is um, proven to be safe and effective. I have a friend who is Black who deliberately enrolled in a vaccine trial because she's worried that they're not diverse enough in terms of who's enrolling. And other people who are Black who are like, there is no way I'm enrolling in a vaccine trial because of the history of medical racism in the U.S. What do we know, if anything, about who's enrolling in trials? Moderna, which is the one of the companies that has um, is engaged in the phase three trials of a vaccine, has been transparent about the percentage of um, participants in their vaccine trial that are African-American. And as of mid-September, only 7% of the trial participants were, were Black. And they put a lot of effort along with community health workers to really focus on getting the African-American population to participate in the vaccine. Because we have such a disproportionate um, amount of the African-American population in the U.S. being affected by this virus, we really need to include the population in the trial, in the vaccine trial, so that um, we can also prove that the vaccine is safe and efficacious in that population that's being the most affected. What about leadership from the top? The president has been holding rallies where a lot of people aren't wearing masks. Um, you know, is modeling this sort of behavior having an effect on people, do you think? Absolutely. If the public health message is not believed or practiced by our political leaders, then effectively the public health message is being undermined. And that's what we're seeing happen um, with the behavior of the White House and the behavior of many of our elected officials. And, you know, the science is telling us clearly now that if we implement simple things, there are four kind of basic behavioral interventions that every single person can implement. That includes wearing a face mask, that includes physical distancing, and then staying home if you're ill and washing your hands. And if, if we all engage in those four behaviors, we will absolutely see transmission rates decrease and we'll be able to send our kids back to school and get back to life as we somewhat knew it before. And, and if, again, our political leaders and our officials were on the same page about this, then, um, you know, I think we would be in a different, in a different place right now um, and not, you know, nine months into the pandemic looking at a trajectory that still is continuing to go up instead of going down. Dr. Kavita Trevetti, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Fry.
health disparities for communities of color laid bare by COVID-19 were not new or surprising to many medical professionals. For some, the pandemic opened up an opportunity to address a need in their community. Healthcare for the People serves communities in Brooklyn, New York. I asked the founders to tell me more about their organization and their view on the pandemic. Dr. Ronika Mukherjee is a nurse practitioner with a doctoral degree and a teacher at the Yale School of Nursing. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And Siobhan Paul is a family nurse practitioner as well. Welcome. Thank you, Farai. So I'm going to start with you, Siobhan. Um, tell us about Healthcare for the People. So Healthcare for the People is a project that was started by a group of licensed medical professional. We're all friends, and some of us work together. And the reason uh, this project was created is in response to the healthcare disparities in Black and Brown communities. And it's not as though we weren't aware of these disparities. I think COVID-19 highlighted a lot of the inequities. And so we came up with a decision to deliver free healthcare in Prospect Park every Saturday. And we're typically there from noon to 4 p.m. Um, serving the community. And Dr. Mukherjee, um, what was the early part of the pandemic like for you and, and um, what made you want to be part of this? Well, the early part of the pandemic for me, I was in Tijuana, Mexico. You know, I, I run this refugee health organization on the border, um, which is also another free healthcare project. The, the COVID situation in Tijuana has meant having to come up with a lot of creative solutions that I think many medical providers in the U.S. would balk at. That's the reality of, of healthcare anywhere in the world that isn't um, a first world country. But I think what it points to is how incredibly shameful the COVID situation is in the United States. Like, we have all of these resources. We're one of the richest countries in the world. We have more medical innovation than just about any other country in the world. And also the highest rates of death from COVID in the world because of the lack of caring for communities of color and also poor people. Siobhan, you were born in Guyana, grew up in Barbados, and your family moved to Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And this is where you've spent your adult life and had your own family. So how do you think of the healthcare system here in the U.S.? You're right. I grew up in a third world country where we did not have access to healthcare. And I didn't see a doctor until I came to this country. Um, and for me, it's heartbreaking because this is a country that does have the resources to help alleviate some of these disparities that has exist and continue to exist in black and brown communities. And, and I think black and brown people have been screaming for help. And it takes a pandemic for people around the country to see what's been taking place and what's going on. And when I go to your Instagram, which is Healthcare for the People 2020, it's pretty inspiring. What kind of joy or purpose does it bring to you to do this work? There's work that you do that pays your bills, and then there's the work that you do that feeds your soul. And it makes me feel so good 
to give back to my community and to help people in need. And even though it is hard work, it doesn't feel that way because I know that there's a purpose behind it and there's a need for it. And Dr. Mukherjee, I'll ask you the same thing. What I've learned while being in healthcare is that it's really easy to rebuild and support these systems that create greater oppression. Working for, you know, hospitals that serve predominantly wealthy people or working for pharmaceutical companies or working for insurance companies. And I have chosen not to do that because what I believe in is that there is there is a limit to how much money we should be making and the, the type of work um, we should be doing should reflect our personal politics and our personal dedication to communities of color and marginalized communities. You know, we need to, one of the things I think about when I think about healthcare for the people is that we need to be thinking about disability justice more. Right now where we are, is not as accessible as I would like it to be for people who um, are disabled. If you could do one thing to transform healthcare in America to make it more equitable and more for the people, what would it be? It's not a healthcare thing. I would eradicate policing, incarceration, um, you know, all of the structures of inequity that exist that create the health disparities between the communities of, um, you know, low income and uh, POC, Black Indigenous communities. You know, when you think about health inequity, anytime you look at health inequity, it is about social inequity. And I think that's very clear in the United States as well. I agree. It is deeper than just the healthcare system. We're talking about uh, systemic racism and things that are built in place, and it's not just healthcare. But I would like to see a more universal healthcare um, where it is something provided to everyone. You know, everyone can go to the same hospitals, to the same doctor, and receive the same level of care. Siobhan Paul, Dr. Ronika Mukherjee, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Siobhan Paul, Brooklyn-based artist and family nurse practitioner and Dr. Ronika Mukherjee, family nurse practitioner, acupuncturist, and co-director of a refugee health organization. You can find Healthcare for the People on Instagram at Healthcare for the People 2020, along with a link to their GoFundMe page. All funds go directly to medical supplies for their pop-up clinic. Coming up next... I think part of our job is to understand what's said and not being said. So when we say words, when we say things like Black liberation, what are people hearing? Do they see themselves in it? When we say words like, I don't know, a feminist future, where, 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 where do I get to live in that? When we say leadership, the future of leadership, who are we speaking of? You're listening to Our Body Politic. You can find more information about our program at farai.com slash OBP. You can also find a link there to leave us written feedback for our platform Speak or to call Speak to leave a voicemail. The number is 
929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. We'd like to hear from you ahead of the election. We have one simple question. What is the most important issue to you as a voter and why? Please keep sending us your thoughts and sharing the show with friends and family. Writer and illustrator Frankie Huang explores feminism, diaspora identity, and social issues in China and the U.S. She was born in Beijing, raised in New Jersey, and is now based in Shanghai, from where she joined us. Welcome, Frankie. Thank you for having me, Farai. So you really have written quite an interesting body of work on a lot of different topics, including following the outbreak of COVID-19 from the beginning. Um, It started in Wuhan province in China, and now the U.S. is the epicenter of the outbreak um, seven, eight months later. I can't help but mention that the president has repeatedly used the whole slur of the China virus, including in the first and potentially only presidential debate. What do you make of the pretty obvious weaponized xenophobia around China coming from the White House? Well, it's just a ploy to um, distract us from the fact that the White House has handled the pandemic in the worst way at every turn. And yes, the, the virus came out of China, but obviously it has a life of its own. It has nothing to do with the Chinese government, the Chinese people, but this is a really great way to take the focus off of, um, you know, the White House politicizing um, a pandemic and letting Americans get sick and die. You also tweeted out um, on March 28th, Some Chinese masks and PPE donors told me they're nervous about attracting too much attention for donating a lot to the U.S. because people will start to wonder why they have so much. Um, You know, was it difficult for people who were in China or Chinese-American to even pitch in because of the xenophobia? Yes. Um, Well, everybody really, because I think a lot of people of Chinese descent were much more aware of the gravity of the situation because it's already gotten really bad in China. They really wanted to help because they see that the response in in the U.S. has been so sluggish. But by then, I think the, the xenophobia has already taken hold and donating masks and PPEs to Americans is sort of and, you know, it, it wounds the pride of a lot of Americans. And and also, because of the xenophobia, there's suspicion, is there ulterior motive? You know, they can't think of these um, Chinese people um, just as, you know, kind folks trying to help. They think they're trying to profit or get something out of it. I want to move on to your piece in Medium, A Complicated History of Han Chinese Anti-Blackness. And you confront the ideas that keep many Han Chinese, um, which you refer to as a group led by culture and language rather than nationality, from being supportive of Black Lives Matter. And I was really drawn to two concepts that you talked about, white adjacency and chauvinism. Tell me a little bit more about how you... Um, kind of define these and see these working into the bigger issue? Um, well, I think the the white adjacency was something that I was m- aware of for longer 
because, um, you know, growing up sort of being pushed to be a model minority, I think we were, you know, without saying as much, I think white adjacency is always the goal and sort of a testament to maybe doing everything right and getting away from um, being oppressed by by racism because then we can be the oppressors, essentially. But of course, nobody would say this because um, I think a lot of people aren't even really aware of that being their ultimate goal. And Han chauvinism um, is something that I became aware of a bit later as I as I did more more research about my own country because um, you know in in the U.S. Um, people of Chinese descent is a minority, but in China um, they're the majority and they are the quote unquote or not so quote unquote in some cases um, the oppressors and they are the privileged majority that get to shape the mainstream and shape the status quo. And I think there's a desire for that, for people, for Chinese, people of Chinese descent who who leave China, they still feel like they deserve that. And I think reaching for white adjacency is a way to sort of regain that in their lives. That was writer and illustrator Frankie Huang. At Our Body Politic, we find ways between the doom and gloom and hard conversations to lift ourselves up, provide deeper positive stories, and give you some lighter good news for media and the arts. So this week, Solange Knowles has an amazing piece in Harper's Bazaar. It's fashion, nostalgia, and notes from a diary combined into their own mesmerizing piece. As if her words weren't enough, the photos are stunning. Rapper Megan Thee Stallion wrote an op-ed in the New York Times boldly speaking up for Black women. She also talks about her experience as a victim in a shooting. The video with the article is definitely worth watching. In more strictly music news, Sony Music Group just hired Tiffany R. Warren to be their new executive vice president, chief diversity and inclusion officer. Warren's job will be to continue the work she's been doing for over a decade to ensure diversity and inclusion in the music and entertainment industry. If you live in LA, New York City, or Atlanta, you might have seen some new billboards on the streets from Array, Ava DuVernay's nonprofit arts and advocacy collective. The Law Enforcement Accountability Project, also known as LEAP, has new ads out to educate the public about police brutality and inspire social change. Speaking of DuVernay, it was just announced that she will write, produce, and direct Isabel Wilkerson's New York Times bestseller, Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents. Expect to see some important social issues highlighted in her first Netflix feature film. The hashtag Black Lives Matter movement started in 2013 in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin and its aftermath. Jenea Khan has been instrumental in helping it go global. They're co-founder of Black Lives Matter Canada and now the international ambassador for the movement. Black liberation struggle is a part of any kind of liberation struggle, whether that's aesthetic or ideology, um, whether that's scholarship. Um, you are seeing the sharing of that. I can go anywhere in the world and find Mandela or find Angela or even find Maya or James or Tupac. Jenea Future Khan is a storyteller and activist, and they spent some time with us to share their goals and the future they imagine for our world. Welcome, Jenea. Thanks for being here. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. So there's so many places to start, but I loved a quote that you gave to Time magazine. Our job is to make revolution irresistible. Tell me a little bit more about that. That is definitely influenced by Tony Cade um, Bambara. And essentially, I think of our job as organizers, as storytellers, and what it means to dream. I think part of our job is to understand what's said and not being said. So when we say words, when we say things like Black liberation, what are people hearing? Do they see themselves in it? When we say words like, I don't know, a feminist future, where, 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 where do I get to live in that? What images do we conjure? So I think it's really understanding what's said and what isn't said so that we can speak to the heart of the matter, so that we can speak to the spirit, so that we can speak to humanity, um, to the human condition. And despite all the ugliness in the world um, and in our society, and there's so much, there's so much, there is something that does unite us in the human condition. There's something that does unite us in suffering, um, in joy, And if we can speak to the human condition and we can speak to liberation, revolution as something that everyone can envision on some level, I think, and get just a finger in there, just a toe, um, the rest is so much easier. So our job is to make it irresistible. Our job is to ensure that everyone can see themselves in it and that, that we can create a path and a roadmap to get there. And that's always the hope. That's always the goal. Let me bring up two different types of people um, that I've spent time with that I think that it might be difficult to recruit to that idea. One is people like some of the people in my own family who are, um, you know, not all, but some people who are kind of the respectability politics crowd, like, oh, my Mm. gosh, you know, protesting and showing out and you know, you, you've got to, like, that basically if Black people, for example, only dress nicely and talk nicely and act nicely, in the end, everything will be fine. Um, that's a simplistic interpretation, but there's a certain amount of that and, and a certain amount of resentment of people who don't dress nicely, act nicely, speak nicely. And then there are people who are just extremely powerful, who have... Um, you know, access to resources of a city, but, and who may think of themselves as good people or philanthropists, but would not want to share the power of decision-making over those resources. How might what you just said apply to either or both of those groups? I, you know, I say it with so much love, but we tried it that way. You know, we did it. Um, In fact, we saw these things happen simultaneously. We saw the civil rights struggle specifically led by the King administration. At the same time, we had the Black Panther Party. We had the Liberation Army. We had so many different groups of people. The point is that we tried it that way. We saw it. We saw it through. Um, It wasn't a failure. The movement was successful because they had specific goals and those goals were met and reached. And People were killed. Our people were killed. An entire generation of Black leadership. Um, we saw it with Malcolm X, with MLK. We tried it that way. And my point is, we should always be looking to find different ways to fight, different ways to win. And now here we are in this moment and this time. And the, the longing, I think, for a kind of leadership that is recognizable speaks to how uncomfortable we are with seeing Black women 
Black queer people, Black trans people in a position of leadership, that we don't actually know to recognize it when it's there, that we don't understand how to recognize decentralized models. We saw the single male leader. We saw it through. Now we're a movement that is, that is what we call leaderful. So many women, so many queer people, so many trans people, so many non-binary people, and all the intersections. Black woman scholarship is what has been providing answers to the questions that people have been too afraid to ask for too long. And to the second one, Farai, I want to say that everyone is welcome on this particular freedom train, Farai, you know, but oligarchs, I don't believe at a certain point that they can concede power. If I'm good enough <laughs> to convince some of them to join, if we're good enough, um, you know, that's that's fantastic. But I don't know it's a, if it's a matter of us being good enough or even our, our vision being um, irresistible enough. I think it has to be really about their own relationship to the human condition, their own connection. And I do think we get to, in this kind of David and Goliath fight. And for me, when I think of Goliath, when I think of giants, right, in, you know, Greek mythology, for example, we think of the Cyclops. Um, when we think of the fact that in, with Goliath, there was a weakness between their eyes. There's a concentration on eyes when it comes to giants. And I think that it's, a, it's about concentration of power. And I do believe the more power that one gets, right, the more singular you become in, in your vision. And so there's something, I think, about oligarchs, where they are so singular in their vision around wealth uh, that they lose sight of everything else. And so I think our job is to try to rebalance that sight, rebalance the world. And there are going to be those who resist. And the hope is that there are going to be those who invest, who participate, who engage with their humanity, with the human condition. Um, and that will require a kind of betraying of their own self-interest um, on one level, which is the capitalist one to pay into the kind of self-interest that is around um, the, hum the, the human level. When is the first time that you remember understanding what an activist was? And when was the first time that you understood yourself as an activist? Who those questions, Fry. Um, the first time that I witnessed activism, I didn't know that's what it was. I was 13, and so was my sister, who was my twin. And we were with my mother, and we lived in a women's shelter. And my sister and I had just started high school. We have a late birthday. And so we were in grade nine. This was the time before cell phones. And so, you know, it was very common, very normal for everyone to sort of share their phone numbers. And that's how you built relationships, especially amongst young girls. Well, that was a bit awkward for my sister and I, who at the time felt like we had to hide um, where we lived because we felt shame around being in a women's shelter. There's a common area and that's the phone line and any number of people could pick it up. It's always somebody different depending on who's around. And what I noticed was those women, I think they may have picked up on some of our anxiety. And so each of them would refer to themselves as our auntie. At one point, a friend said, how many, how many aunties do you have? And we, I laughed, you know, my sister and I were left. I said, I said, many. And so here are all these women who are arguably the most vulnerable and one of the most difficult moments in their lives, most fleeing um, some kind of hideous 
situation, um, whether that's abuse or uh, whether that is poverty related. And I always say poverty is on purpose. It is something that is constructed in our society. Um, you know, some of them have young children. And yet, not only were they trying to shield my sister and I, but many of the women there took me under their wing. I, I was struggling in a way that was different uh, than my sister. I, I needed a kind of guidance, a kind of care uh, that my mother at the time just could not provide. Uh, she was going through a lot of mental health issues and she really has her entire life. And so these women really just stepped in and helped me without alienating my mother, um, you know, would walk to the store with me, would talk to me about some of my goals, would tell me that this moment was just a moment in my life. And they showed me what activism was, that it was just being for someone else who you needed most in your most vulnerable moments. I think having seen a kind of care that I longed for, um, it helped me to understand that I could be that for someone else. And in doing that and being in service, um, that I could experience that kind of love too. Jenea Future Khan, thank you for the invitation to power and for your wisdom. Thank you. That was Jenea Future Khan, International Ambassador for Black Lives Matter and an activist, storyteller, and futurist. Thank you for joining us on Our Body Politic this week. We'll be on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistants from Mark Betancourt and Virginia Laura. Our political bookers are Mary Knowles and Melanie Gannam. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work. 